very warm welcome to this eighth installment of our Science in Life webinar series on rare diseases. My name is Sean Sanders and I will be the moderator for today's panel discussion. We are almost at the end of our nine-part series on rare diseases running through the remainder of 2021. You can find previous webinars in this series on our website at science.org webinars, and that's webinars with an S. Uh, here we will be posting archive versions of this event, uh, as well as all of our previous events. In our previous discussions, we covered a range of topics related to rare diseases, including challenges in diagnosing and detecting rare diseases, uh, and the role of primary care doctors in this process, at the field of neonatal testing for rare diseases, the use of artificial intelligence in rare disease research, and also the importance of considering the psychological impacts of rare disease. In this penultimate webinar in the series, we're going to turn to finding solutions, and I will be questioning our panel about current and future pathways to better detection, diagnosis, and treatment of rare diseases. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. I am now delighted to introduce today's panelists to you. We once again have an internationally diverse team joining us from the US, the UK and Italy. Uh, as usual, we're going to have each of them uh, introduce themselves and say a few words about their interests and their work. So I'm going to start with Dr. Domenica Tarishu. Domenica? Nice to meet you. Um, I am Domenica Tarusho. I'm the director of the National Center for Rare Diseases at the Italian Public Health Institute in Roma, in Italy. And uh, I worked always on rare diseases. And my interests are from primary prevention to diagnosis, to surveillance, to information education, and of course, translational research. So let's say that I'm interested in all aspects of rare diseases. Great, thank you so much, Dominica. Uh, let's have uh, Dr. Tim Gilliams next. Hi, so my name is Tim. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Helix. And Helix is a mission-driven tech company focused on accelerating treatments for rare diseases. And it's an immense uh, privilege to be here today. And um, our approach for finding rare disease treatments, it's slightly different. We try and do this uh, with a new drug discovery paradigm and at a different scale. So delighted to be here today. Great, thank you so much, Tim. Uh, next up, uh, we have Dr. David Pierce. David? Thank you, yeah, David Pierce. Uh, I'm the president for research, innovation and the World Clinic program for Sanford Health. Uh, I've been on an incredible journey in the last few years, having had a basic research lab uh, which was looking to understand a, a rare lysosomal storage disorder called Batten disease, uh, going to the first ever clinical trial for that particular disease, which made me appreciate the need for uh, registries and natural history studies. Without that, we would never have gone to a clinical trial. Uh, so that journey has taken me to the fact I you know, lead a large research institution with a focus on rare diseases and have established a, a national, if not international, registry program uh, for rare diseases. And, uh, into today's conversation, I currently uh, am the vice chair for the International uh, Research uh, Consortium. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, David. And finally, we have Dr. Marta Mosca. Uh, thank you for joining us, Marta. Thank you. Hi, I am Marta Mosca, and I'm professor of rheumatology and chief of the rheumatology unit at the University of Pisa in Italy. 
I am the coordinator of a European Reference Network. The name of the network is Reconnet, and is the network dedicated to the rare and complex connective tissue and musculoskeletal diseases. So this is a wonderful project from the European Commission and dedicated to the care of patients with rare diseases. As a doctor, my mission is to diagnose and treat these patients and to research on how to better monitor and treat patients with rare rheumatic diseases. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Marta. Uh, so we're going to dive right in. Um, I think, David, I'm going to put the first question to you. So in, in the webinars that we've done up till now in this series, one of the issues that keeps on coming up is, is the diagnosis of rare diseases, correct diagnosis. So um, I wanted to ask a few questions of the panel on this, and David, we'll start with you. So what can be done to get a more accurate diagnosis? This is a huge problem for anyone with a rare disease. What are we currently doing, and what do you think we, with the, with the future will hold for this? Yeah, the diagnostic odyssey, as we often call it in rare diseases, is you know is a, a problem that's uh, you know been with us for many years, and uh, you know it's 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 a really difficult problem as a physician if you encounter someone that has a, some of the symptoms you know with respect to the rare diseases because there can be multiple you know, multiple symptoms. Uh, which make it very difficult to actually get to the direct diagnosis because, you know, there could be a variety of different things that are presenting. So therefore, you know, you, you try to sort of say, okay, well, you have this symptom and this could lead to this particular disease. But the problem is, is and then you have multiple codes in, in certainly in the United States, you, have, you know, CPT codes for diagnosis and uh, for different things. And then you can ultimately have many diagnoses, but not the correct one because, Really, most the vast majority of rare diseases do not have a CPT diagnostic code right now. Uh, and then again, in the United States, that makes it tremendously difficult for with respect to you know putting a, the appropriate treatment in place. So um, you know, through this International Rare Disease Research Consortium, I've talked about you know we've been trying to you know we pulled some workshops together really, and the idea is is that we need to be better at mining the electronic medical record or mining the information. And then, you know, probably using artificial intelligence and some sort of sophistication in terms of, okay, these are the different symptoms that are associated to a disease. Because when it comes down to it, despite the fact we want a genetic diagnosis, most rare diseases still only have a clinical diagnosis based on the symptomatic presentation of the disease. So I think we need to get providers and payers and researchers and, and just grab all that data and then just try and figure out a better way to expedite getting to that treatment and diagnosis. If I can add something, uh, it's true <clears throat> what David said, uh, but I would like also to add that there are many, mm, many problems around this, uh, this issue, uh, not only coding, but which is a very important, of course, um, problem coding, uh, nomenclature, of course, of the disease, which we should use an international unique uh, um, nomenclature in order to 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 understand each other and to 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 collect data which are also machinable let's say so uh, i think that this is a big issue and uh, diagnosis can be really still a problem for a lot of patients uh, that even with uh, all these um, uh, studies and uh, efforts, they don't have a diagnosis. So I would like to mention that there is an international network 
uh, on uh, undiagnosed disease. And this is dedicated at a global level. This is dedicated to collect information uh, for patients without diagnosis and share best practices, uh, best protocols uh, and experiences. So I think that there is a big, a huge effort at the global level also to, to, to join the, the synergies. Yeah. If I may add one thing, uh, I think that one important aspect is the fact that we base our diagnosis on clinical symptoms and sometimes these symptoms are very mild. We need to think about rare diseases. I think this is the very first step before uh, coding, before genetics. We need to realize that our patients and patients with C may have a rare disease. So to me, one important aspect is the knowledge that there are the rare diseases. We are here today discussing about this because we need to make clear not only to us and to the community of those who are interested in rare diseases about these conditions. Um, I think that one important aspect is that we do not recognize what we do not know. And if we do not think about rare diseases, the moment we see our patients in the clinic as GPs or um, any, any specialty we are following, we are not going to get this. So in a way, all this information should be made available for all the doctors and the physician dealing with patients and uh, at a very initial level, uh, and then moving on to codification, to names and to uh, things. And so um, the, the very mild clinical manifestations and the collecting data and the registries become very important because I think it's the entry step that is very important to diagnose a rare disease. And um, thank you. I would like to add a, a comment to this as well. Very important uh, topic and, and question. So from a tech and AI perspective, what's going to be possible soon, and in fact, it's already possible, but it's not being adopted yet, is to try and, I guess, think about your diagnosis in a less narrow way so that you can basically potentially be you know 60 percent fragile x syndrome 30 percent speed hopkins and 10 percent ret for example and and trying to think about that in a slightly different way and form uh, different ways of of pulling patients together and and diseases together and so form smart patient and disease clusters. And this is what we use internally to try and predict new treatments. But I think it could really start with, with the diagnosis where there's so many comorbidities, there's so many links between rare diseases, also common diseases. And I'm sure today the technology is available to try and make sense of that and maybe have a, a bit more holistic diagnosis that is not just one rare disease at a time. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, thank you for that. So, so just coming back to, to something that you touched on, Tim, and also that Martha touched on, is the training of physicians uh, to think about rare diseases. So this is also something that's come up in our previous events. So Martha, how, how do we need to think about this? What needs to change in the training of physicians so that they are more aware of rare diseases and maybe don't just dismiss or misdiagnose, which is a, another clearly another issue? We need to start to build up uh, teaching and courses even at the university level on rare diseases. 
for example, I teach at university and there is no specific teaching for doctors, so for medical students. I think that this is an important first step because they need to understand since the beginning of their careers that there are rare diseases. And probably, I mean, I teach about some rheumatic rare diseases. Probably it should be a dedicated course on, on rare diseases, on how we deal with this, on the issues we have with patients with rare diseases, sometimes even in spite of the diagnosis or the type of disease. And, uh, but then we need to move on. For example, within the ERNs, we have um, educational projects for GPs, healthcare professionals, is, is nurses, is physiotherapists, because I suspect diagnosis might come from any healthcare professional, not only physicians. And, and this is very important, you know, because we might go to a physiotherapist or a nutrition specialist for some symptoms we have, and these symptoms might be related with a rare disease. So this is something we do with ERNs. And um, so it's different levels. So I don't think there is really something, we, one thing we have to change, but we need really to start from the basis and then move on and continuously build on this, uh, the idea that we need to talk about that. If I can add something on this, it's true. I totally agree with Marta. Uh, so starting from the medical school, let's say, and then uh, go on, uh, so uh, there is a continuous, uh, let's say, continuum education to be done in all um, multi-stakeholder teams. So we should also uh, teach, I think, how to work together in a multi-stakeholder uh, team because uh, just one doctor or just one nurse cannot um, do uh, the best, I mean, that they can do, of course. They cannot make the, the right or correct diagnosis by themselves. Now, it's a, it's a must to work in a multi-team uh, dimension. Uh, and also not only physically, but maybe we should use, uh, as uh, the European Reference Network do, uh, the e-learn platforms, for example, in order to, to have uh, um, second opinion consultation uh, in, in one country or um, transversal in a multi-country level so or international level so i think that uh, the, the, the picture is changing so fast and we should really to to uh, take advantage of these changes because the, the, there is a uh, if i can say through the european reference networks and but, but usa had always uh, already the, the um, clinical networks, for example, so since many years, so we know very well since 20, uh, more than 20 years ago. So there are so many um, new uh, activities, uh, new um, possibilities, but we should really synergize and uh, make an effort to, to, to uh, do our best to use them at the best level and to, 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 to let them know yeah, there is not a unique up to now, although there is IRDIC, I'm, I'm sure, which is dedicated to, to research. And there are many other societies, for example, ICORD, which is an international conference, uh, Society for Rare Diseases, uh, and other initiatives. But there is not a unique hub where we can collect, for example, all this information. So maybe we need a, a, a unique hub at international level, not just European or not just Australian or USA, but globally. Because now, I mean, we know very well rare diseases are, have not barriers. So we have to, to also to use this 
global uh, instruments. So, so yeah, I, I think you're all right. First of all, I wanted to thank you for not correcting me. I was dealing with something this morning with procedures. I, so when I talked about coding, it should be ICD-10, not CPT. I was dealing with CPT codes this morning, so I had that stuck in my head. So just to clarify, uh, when I was talking about diagnosis, you guys know, so thank you for not correcting me. Is there, there aren't enough ICD-10 codes. <clears throat> I think, you know, Dominica and Marta, what you're saying, you know, I completely agree. The problem is, is, is what you're just saying is it's just a huge task, isn't it, to get all of that information out there. I mean, you know, when I think of the, you know, the journey I've been on with the, the pediatric neurologist that I recruited to, to do this natural history study, you know, when I first met him, he said, I've seen one child with the disease you're talking about. And so many physicians really in their lives will only see, you know, maybe one of these, you know, children or adults with a rare disease. So trying to map out that education, uh, you know, for what we think it could be 7,000 rare diseases is, is going to be tremendously difficult. If I think in my area, you know, you know how many diseases present with seizures? Um, and then you have to sort of say maybe take that all of that 300 or so, possibly even more, uh, you know, disorders that present with seizures and then follow that map along for the diagnosis. And um, so, I, you know, we, we have to get there with the education and, and, uh, and but how we actually get to the different subspecialities uh, for these is, is going to be critical because the primary care physicians in particular, who I adore in the fact that they have to manage this right from the get go, but to try and get them into the right subspecialities sooner rather than later is probably you know the first you know the first piece of the puzzle i think mm -hmm. great so i um, yeah, go ahead tim so uh, um another yeah very very important topic so i'd like to add a, a comment to this one um i think there there could be a solution for this and 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 this is where on the one hand it's a very complex problem right there are seven thousand rare diseases um, you also have the common diseases, and I think in rare diseases, it's really important to find the links with common diseases. That's how you can really make uh, breakthroughs faster. But then you want to dive into the detail and almost have a solution or an app per rare disease or closely related cluster of rare diseases. And so I don't know from the people who are listening, it would be great if, if, if some techies could come up with a map where you could almost per disease or per disease cluster design what's relevant for the patients, what's relevant. And then your patients and families can use that to talk to the various stakeholders and educate the nurses, the doctors, everyone involved. And, and I think with today's technologies and, you know, you have so many apps out there uh, solving problems that are not meaningful at all. So my, my message to those who are developing apps, could you please help us, you know, design something like this where you can go from the 7,000, but then also much more specific, almost one disease or one disease cluster at a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great idea, Tim. And I actually wanted to stay with you on a related topic, and that is just taking sort of one step before diagnosis, uh, looking at detection, um, a comment was made in one of our, our webinars that there are many people out there who don't know that they have a rare disease and that this is a huge problem. So I'm wondering how the tech side of things and the work, some of the work that you do can identify some of these people or help identify them maybe through apps. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Um, thank you. Thank you for the question. So I think that's you almost want to be uh, preventative in a way. You almost want to let people know before the disease manifests, because mm -hmm. I think when symptoms are um, important enough, most people will understand that there's something going on. And then, you know, originally we take up to eight to 10 years to get a diagnosis, which is like, you know, uh, incredibly slow. And um, I don't know what could be designed because it's a fine line. You want to, to almost go preventative, but also you don't want to alarm people when it's not needed. And I'm wondering if other people would like to uh, contribute to this. It's a, it's a very hard, very fine line. Well, of course, uh, I think that we can also use uh, traditional tools like such as uh, uh, genetic counseling, for example, no? So you can have uh, uh, a great uh, genetic counseling and uh, see if there are families or members <clears throat> in a given family with high risk, for example. Uh, so this is, we should push in this direction because it's uh, not uh, so um, uh, used in many countries. Uh, genetic counseling is part of the um, uh, follow-up, but it's not mandatory, for example. So I think that we can have this possibility, for example, as I said, for uh, families at risk. Yeah, Marta, please. Oh, yeah. Uh, just wanted to highlight the fact that there are many different types of rare diseases. So for some diseases, this obviously can be done. And there is a, uh, I mean, something we can do on a family basis. But there are also rare diseases for which the diagnosis is based on the clinical manifestations. So for the, uh, let's say, very, very early diagnosis, I, I, I agree with Tim that I see this a little bit a problem because it's very difficult uh, preventing or understanding who is at risk for some of these diseases. So the idea is really capturing very early clinical manifestations. Uh, for example, this is my experience in rheumatological rare diseases where there is a delay in diagnosis and the disease onset sometimes is very, very mild. But again, you, you, the risk is to overdiagnose or, or in, uh, having too many referrals for rare diseases, which uh, cannot be done. I mean, rare diseases by definitions are rare. And, and if you over-refer patients, this is going to be difficult to be supported. So I think it's a, it's a tricky thing and it has been differentiated among the different rare diseases. It's a, a, something that you've, a number of you have mentioned um, a few times is databases or patient registries. Um, there are some out there. Um, they appear to be more localized than broadly international. So, um, Dominica, maybe I can come to you with the, a, a couple of questions on these. So, you, you talked about a few of the, the databases that are currently being used. Are they effective? And how can everybody work to bring those together to, to connect all of that information? Yeah, so databases or I, I would like to, 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 to speak about registries. It's more maybe appropriate. So uh, registries are very precious tools, scientific tools. They are uh, information systems that should collect data in a standardized way to be really informative. So there are many, many registries for a specific disease, for a group of diseases, 
or for um, population based like such as public health uh, purposes for example or uh, for also um, for uh, drug uh, purposes so there are different registries up to now uh, there is a long list of registries more than 600 yeah. uh, some of them are uh, national some are uh, regional some are uh, international but uh, you know the point is that all these registries are not at equal level let's say some of them are high level they have a high level of quality because they ensure standardized collection analysis governance sustainability and so on others are, are are just not useful so they collect information but are not useful so the first point is okay we need registries because they are very important for many um, purposes first to study for example the, the 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 specific disease registries are very important to study the etiology of the the, the disease the pathogenesis uh, so the natural history for example or for other aims but to be useful and effective they should be really high quality and this is not the case second point is the data collected should be fair so these registries it's this is an acronym that we already used uh, always used uh, the fair they should follow the fair principles so what does mean fair fair means findable accessible interoperable and reusable data so if you follow these principles which is not just uh, you know a an acronym but there is a lot a, a, a lot of work behind it then data can be really useful to with for for science for research for for uh, additional studies uh, the point is that there, there, there is a high heterogeneity i can tell you with really i'm, I'm just closed uh, this uh, um, friday i we closed the ninth edition of the international summer school on registries for rare diseases and verification of data this summer school, which is organized by uh, our center, uh, it, it's, uh, it started nine years ago, but uh, funded by the Instituto Superior di Sanità, by the Italian Public Health Institute. Now it's co-funded by the European Commission through a European project, which is called uh, RD, um, a, um, important project, uh, AJP project. Okay, this, this summer school, fi we spent five days, five days uh, with um, the famous experts, very famous experts on the registration, on verification, and so on and so on. And many, many young people, uh, uh, students, not only, uh, you know, students, but also professionals that are willing to, to improve how to run a registry and how to, to, to have a registry at high quality. Pro there are many problems. The community is uh, really excited. They, is at an international level. This is not an, a national issue. It's uh, at international level, but still uh, a lot of work has to be done to reach really, you know, results. This is my, uh, after many, many years working on registries, this is my conclusion. Mm -hmm. We are in, in, in a good way, let's say, but still we have to, to go on, mm -hmm. yeah. So before before anybody else uh, comments, I did just want to ask you. So what very briefly, what do you mean by high quality? 
just so that the audience can understand this data. Yeah, high quality means that you should, there is a process and you know, there is an internal uh, control, external control quality. There are many procedures that we should follow as a scientist and uh, as a, pro a registry manager. So there are really um, rules, uh, strict rules to be observed in order to obtain data, which are really high quality data. Then we can analyze them and uh, we can find good results. Otherwise, you know, if you don't observe these rules, you have a garbage in and then garbage out. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is the point. If you want really to, to have useful registries for research, for, uh, as I said, to understand the pathogenesis, the etiology of diseases, and to provide also input for uh, new therapies, for example, we need a really excellent data. High quality data means excellent data. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, David, maybe I can come to you for your thoughts. Yeah, so, yeah, Dominica's absolutely right. The problem is, of course, again, we're dealing with, you know, the heterogeneity of all of these different rare diseases and the different types of, you know, data that you would want to collect, you know, depending on how the, the disorder manifests. I have a slightly sort of different, you know, approach really in terms of, you know, when families have a diagnosis of a rare disease, they do reach out and, you know, they want answers, you know, they want information. And, you know, so my sense is, is that for a registry to get to where we want to have that sophisticated registry, it's okay just to have what I call a contact registry, first of all. If you don't have the individuals registered, then you cannot go to the next step and maybe put a natural history study together. So, and then, you know, depending on the disease in the, and the group that you're working with, what we do with our rare disease registries is, is allow them to put together their own survey questions, first of all, because they know that a disease, they know themselves, you know, the, the symptoms and the clinical profile better than anybody else. <clears throat> and then hopefully that will evolve into then being able to get to that sophisticated, uh, you know, a database by going in and saying, hey, can we have access to your medical records? Or can we have a researcher or a physician who's very familiar with the disease, put a more sophisticated uh, survey together but, uh, you know, we, we all know, you know, a rare disease diagnosis or an undiagnosed disease before you get to that diagnosis, you know, it's, it's such a terrible journey. Um, so providing hope, quite frankly, I think is one of the underlying, you know, things of a, putting that first registry and natural history study together because it shows that there are people that are interested and they want to help um, because there's a lot of mistrust in the rare disease field sometimes as well. You know, lots of people trying to put registries together and not sharing data sets and, and, and such forth, you know. So I think, you know, what Dominica says is absolutely right, but sometimes we have to sort of walk before we can run uh, to actually get to that, uh, you know, that stage and so build some trust, get some, you know, simple data sets first and then get uh, to that higher level. Mm -hmm. Great. And, um... I would like to share with you the experience of your ends. Because uh, within the ORNs, we need to develop registries. But I would like just to say that patients are willing to share their data. Our patients, um, they know the importance of registries and they really want to be reassured and they are really keen on participating and giving data because they really know that this is, I'm not saying the only way, but a very, very important way to help them. So within the RNs, uh, there are uh, actions 
together with patients, aimed at understanding, and Dominica knows this very well because she works with many ERNs and uh, with us, to find ways to share data. They want to be sure, they want their data to be used, but they want to give their data. And, and so we really need to find a way uh, and to collect what we need. Sometimes is epidemiological data, very easy. Sometimes it's more detailed data, particularly, for example, for us, is for some diseases, we really do not know much. So registries really are very basic, uh, needed to, to have information on the disease. Mm -hmm. So, Tim, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm going to give you a chance right now to speak. I did want to ask you if, if you could speak to the quality of the data and how that's used in the type of work that you do. And also, um, Dominica mentioned a garbage in, garbage out, which be, might be a term that some people are not familiar with. So maybe you can just explain what that means uh, from a data perspective. Th th thank you, Sean. So, yeah, from, from a data perspective, this is incredibly important. So the amount of information that companies like Helix, you know, could use to try and predict a treatment, uh, come up with a better understanding of the um, uh, patient phenotype, the disease biology, etc., is is really immensely valuable, and particularly around uh, more of a, a patient journey, so that it's not a you know, a snapshot, but something that uh, keeps evolving because most rare diseases are progressive. And and so you, you want something uh, longitudinal. So you, you want information that kind of goes with the patient. And what's quite exciting in terms of developments is um, on the one hand, Yes, there is this principle of garbage in, garbage out, but then there's also a new type of algorithms which allow you to basically work with much more noisy data and incomplete data. And a big um, focus of, of Helix is, is we've developed a, a rare disease knowledge graph. And a, a knowledge graph is, is basically a, a database of relationships. So it's it's what Google use for their search engine. And when you search something, usually in the top three, you have the, the right answer. But here, um, as part of uh, this, this, this graph, you want different levels of certainty and relationships. And some of those relationships will be wrong. Some of those will be right. But from imperfect data and existing relationships, you want to start predicting new relationships and gaps. And so that's where, um, and that's that's a really big breakthrough because it, it means that with noisy, imperfect data, you may be able to use machine learning to try and make sense of that. And sometimes you'll be wrong, sometimes you'll be right. But I think that's a hugely, um, yeah, a big, big breakthrough, um, at least for, for companies like ours. And, and I think if, if you could find a way to really empower the patients and give them the right tools, because as, as the others um, on, the, on the panel just explained, the, the right initiatives have started, you know, it's happening. But then how do we make it as easy as possible for the patients and families to contribute to that, to share their data, to empower them to do so, and also potentially come up with a solution that is um useful 
beyond the natural history and research that all of us are trying to do. So I, I don't know what the exact solution uh, yet is, but I think if we focus really on, on the patient, their journey and making it as easy as possible for them to continue to share the right information, to contribute, and they are the experts. So the rare disease patients and families, they really are the experts. And so they need to help us, you know, develop the right treatments, et cetera. And I'll, I'll stop here, I could go on for, for a long time. If I can add just one word, they are, I would like to share with you uh, uh, an experience that we are uh, now uh, in uh, in Italy. Uh, we know uh, we have uh, since many years, since 21, the National Registry for Rare Diseases, which is a, a national registry with uh, a minimum data set, collect information on more than 500 different rare diseases. Okay, this is for public health um, aims. But now we have, since two or three years, we have patients that come to us as an as Italian Public Health Institute and say, uh, listen, I would like, as a patient, as an association, we would like to understand better our disease, as David said, we would like to work with you <clears throat> as an institution and with our experts. Please, can you help us to, to, to build a, a good, high-quality registry? So starting from this request, we started 10, 10 specific rare, rare disease registries. For example, Prader-Willi is one, cystic fibrosis is another one, and so on and so on. High quality, but this is this, this registry has been started by the desire of patients to know better the disease and to improve the quality of life, their quality of life. So I go back to what David said. So, Patients are the primum moments in families, of course, because they express the desire to stay better, to, to, to improve the quality of life. So they, they, they say, please, we, we give you help, we help you, but you should start from our needs. Mm -hmm. So this is another perspective, you know? So the, 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 it's not the old perspective of collecting data uh, like 20 years ago, uh, by experts, by epidemiologists, by statistician. Now it's completely changed. So, and the community it's made by first by patients and the associations, second by uh, experts, uh, stakeholders, multi multi teams uh, experts, and then institutions. So these trios are going very very fast. I can tell you because in two years we have a, a great results in specific rare disease. Of course, you cannot have a. But I think there. Are, several ways then to 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 reach uh, results starting with as a, as a team also underlined from the patients yeah and actually i want to add a, a comment to that um because this is a really nice example where basically it's a true partnerships you know researchers like us the patient communities advocacy groups you know can work together to make a difference and align behind a common mission, which is to diagnose faster, get treatments to rare disease patients faster. And so this is an area where patients, families, patient advocacy groups can really help make a difference. And um, and it's so important to, to get it right. And there's many initiatives already happening. So I'd like to encourage everyone to, uh, to continue. Great. So I wanted to come quickly to a term that a couple of you have used, which is natural history studies. 
Um, and David, maybe you can just uh, briefly explain for the audience um, what, what are natural history studies and, and how, how might they be used? Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in a nutshell, a natural history study is, and I'll, I'll use the example of, uh, you know, the physician that I met, you know, years ago, and he said, I've only seen one child with, with uh, Batten disease before. So a natural history study is, first of all, to, to at any given point, is just to, you know, do an examination or follow a patient, um, you know, to get familiar with what the symptomology and the clinical phenotype of the disease is, and then to sequentially just follow up over a period of time. Uh, and, and this is where, you know, I want to give a shout out for the patient advocacy groups, because, you know, when they have, you know, patient groups get together, you know, that's a fantastic opportunity for a physician to go to a meeting where there's a group of the individuals with the rare disease, and then on a routine basis, follow them and see how the disease is actually progressing. And that, that's what we've done uh, with, with Batten disease. So really, the natural history study really is, is just, okay, so how are you feeling today and how are you feeling tomorrow and how are you feeling the next day? I mean, in terms of, you know, what, what the clinical phenotype of the disease is, whether it's a neurological disorder, whether it's uh, um, some sort of kidney disorder, liver disorder, really just tracking uh, the progression of the actual, you know, of the disease itself and the effects it actually has on the individual. And then, of course, you can really, if you think about it, you can graph those symptoms and then you can pinpoint exactly where somebody is during the course of this disease. Is it early on or is it you know, part, you know, partly further on or towards the end of that disease cycle? And that becomes incredibly important when you want to put a clinical trial together. A natural history study is, is you know exactly where you are during the course of the disease. So when you have an intervention, you can see if you're actually slowing that progression or stopping that prog you know the progression of that uh, actual disease. So you know it's one to educate yourself in terms of where you are with respect to the disease, but it's incredibly important in terms of understanding uh, you know is a treatment option actually having some sort of effect. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you for that. Um, did anybody want to add anything to that? I think there was a pretty comprehensive uh, uh, clarification. So great, thank, thank you, David. Um, so Marta, let me, let me come to you with the, the next part of the discussion. And in the, in the time remaining, I'd like to talk about treatments. Um, now, we're we obviously not going to get all the way to pharmaceuticals and things like that, but it's sort of the, the next step, once there's been a diagnosis, you're going to start thinking about treatments. So in the research and development of treatments, uh, what are some of the major barriers and also the specific opportunities to eliminate these barriers? So I think that um, one of the major barriers are the numbers of the patients and the fact that these patients are scattered everywhere. So it's really difficult to make sense to, to find these patients and to treat them into a trial. Even if we had a treatment that we think might be very useful, we need numbers. There are solutions to do this, uh, take different techniques and statistical analysis which can be used. But uh, nonetheless, there are, uh, I would say, even practical barriers. If a patient is living far away from the clinic and, uh, and, and, and these obviously, um, I think now, we may also think uh, as an advantage of what happened here we are today, very confident speaking to a video as if we are, were together. Maybe we've learned this with COVID and maybe in the future, 
And this is also something ERNs actually thought before COVID. Uh, we might uh, enroll patients into trials, even patients living far away with different, followed by different doctors with virtual care and um, telemedicine or uh, in, in a virtual, with a virtual platform. So uh, I think that we covered the fact that we need to think about these patients, but we need to have networks of uh, experts starting from GPs and going to experts. And with these networks, our patients might get to trials and then with platforms and virtual medicine, we might increase the enrollment into, into trials and the possibility for our patients to take an advantage of new treatments. As I was saying, ERNs actually have a platform to discuss about clinical cases, collect data, and also promote trials. And, and this actually started before COVID. But with COVID, now we have learned many, many things. And uh, so I think this could be one way to improve the way we are working in this field. Any thoughts from anyone else, Tim? Um, yes, so I think on the, I guess, treatment research and development side, there's a number of barriers. And one of them is, is I guess, facilitating the work with the patient communities. That's a really important one because they know so much about it. They know about what really matters to them what they've tried before, didn't work, who is the expert, they can open all the doors. And in fact, um, Helix, you know, was started because of a rare disease parent. It's a person called uh, Nick Siro, who lives in Cambridge, UK. And um, his son, Julian, was diagnosed with a ultra rare disease called black bone disease. And when we met Nick in 2014, he was on a journey to, to find a treatment and, and in a different way. And so he, he was trying to repurpose the, the component of a, of a weed killer as a treatment for his children. And this was incredibly successful. So that's now been approved by the EMA as a treatment. And so, you know, those are the inspirational stories of those you know, superhumans like Nick. They have a child with a rare disease. They don't have a scientific or AI background. They don't take no for an answer. They're going on a mission to find a treatment. And then also they succeed, which is incredible. And so I think that's one of the key barriers and is, is this partnership with patient groups. The second one is a, a much more complex one. I think it's it's a barrier about drug discovery paradigm. So traditional drug discovery, like we know it now, is basically target-based drug discovery. And that's on a very, very simple paradigm. It's based on one disease, one target, one drug. And actually, human disease biology is much more complicated than that. And so particularly for rare disease patients, the industry massively under delivered you know you have 7000 rare diseases 95% don't have an approved treatment but actually behind that is an overly simple drug discovery drug discovery paradigm and so because of that you end up with a very large uh, failure rate amazingly long development timelines and costs 
And that's because you started with the wrong hypothesis at the beginning. And, and so what's incredibly important is for companies like ours, but also others to come up with new drug discovery paradigms that is more combinatorial, more complex, where you don't always know why a particular drug is matched to a rare disease, but your algorithms identify that you know, those two drugs could potentially help an ultra rare disease. And so it's really pioneering the, the next generation of drug discovery that's no longer based on, you know, one disease, one target, one drug. That, that's, and that's a fundamental shift. And, and there's a reason why I think basically it's changing right now. It's happening right now. It's happening because you have this new disease biology that's being available, your genome, your transcriptome, your proteome. So you start understanding disease biology in a much more complex way beyond your one target, one disease paradigm. And then you also have the AI technology and data that's happening. On top of that, now there's the deployment of capital, you know, only for drug discovery last year, there was, I think, about $14 billion of investments. And so now you have all those ingredients that are possible to really make a step change, not incremental improvements to a broken drug discovery process to really try and do things differently. And, and so I think that's what's been holding back um, drug discovery and resulting in 95% of rare diseases still without approved treatments because the economics and the model didn't work. And so what we're seeing now, and I think it's gonna take probably, if we're lucky, less than five years to really have an impact. And I think if we, if we take a step back, people will look at this time as the time where the third generation of drug discovery happened. So we started phenotypic based, then we had target based, and now we're going in more AI powered and combinatorial in a much more complicated way. And uh, so I think it is an incredibly exciting time and where fundamental changes are happening. And, um, and we're, we're proud to be working on that. Not everyone is um, as convinced, but, um, but yeah, we think it's, it's happening right now. So, so I, I completely agree with Mardo in terms of, you know, obviously the rarity and scarcity of patients makes it very difficult to put clinical trials together. And Tim, I'm going to take what you just said, which is absolutely right, and take it a little bit more fundamentally. <clears throat> the human genome is around about 3.2 billion base pairs, and we maybe understand about 1% of it right now. <clears throat> and many rare diseases are of a genetic basis. One single change in that 3.2 billion letters can result in a rare disease if, if you have you know, two copies of that. So put, again, put it in the context of, of my background here is in terms of uh, you know, the diseases I focus on are, are neurological. Figuring out how one missing piece, one genetic defect can result in a devastating neurodegenerative disease is a real challenge when we don't understand how the brain works normally in its entirety we don't understand the biology of something so trying to fix something when you don't actually have you know a table of contents and a complete list of all the components and what they do is really very hard so um you know so i think that you know 
and 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 I, I don't have a solution other than obviously what you were saying, obviously targeting and resources and such forth. But it, it's a really difficult problem that you know we have to understand that uh, fixing something when it's broken, uh, when you, you know you don't even have any of the tools and or instructions to go with it, is always going to be very difficult. And then of course you know exacerbated by the rarity and the understanding of what these single things can do. Uh, to a complicated, uh, you know, you know, individual like a human being. So, uh, unfortunately, and it, it is an exciting time. I think on the basis of genetics right now. I mean, the gene therapy clinical trials that are ongoing, and then subsequently the CRISPR ones, and there'll be more to come on top of that. You know, specifically fixing, the, you know, that fundamental defect is certainly on the horizon and be and a reality in some cases uh, right now. Bottom line is, is that we got a long way to understand the human, you know, to go to understand the human condition in its normal uh, sense right now. Uh, if I can add just one more, so I totally agree with you. Uh, it's time to change. Maybe uh, I, I, I really um, like this discussion about. Uh, we already discussed very well the new paradigm. That's fine. Then let's speak about then changing also the. Um, uh, EMA and uh, the FDA regulation, because there are several, of course, regulations that uh, we know very well. I mean, uh, uh, sponsors have uh, incentives, for example, at the European level. I know very well the European ones, but also FDA, Japan, and so on and so on. There are many incentives. Are these enough? Or are these the, the most appropriate? Maybe it's time to to, 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 to open a, dis a discussion on, on this, because after 20 years, at least in Europe, since uh, Regulation 141, I mean, 20 years ago, uh, many things have changed. And uh, in USA, uh, the same. So maybe also the, the uh, regulatory agency should open a discussion, maybe. This is an invitation. It's just, a, so uh, I, I worked for the European uh, EMA, for the EMA, but um, for many years, nine years. So, but uh, I think that discussion is really, you know, important at a global level again, mm -hmm. right. not just the European market. We, we should uh, really open this discussion with the, the, the other uh, agencies, your regulatory agencies. Yeah, I think that's, that's spot on. So I think one of the big bottlenecks will be around regulatory and there's already been with the orphan drug designation, etc., a big push in the right direction. But for example, you know, at Helix, we start, we say we start hypothesis free. So we start without, without the target. Um, and then of course we analyze the data and then we come up with much more complex signatures. And sometimes we don't know how it works, but actually we tested it and it works. And, and so but how do you explain to a regulator that maybe you don't know the target? How do you explain to a pharma partner that you don't do a target-based drug discovery? So that there is a, a real shift and it's important to engage with the right stakeholders and particularly I think the regulators early on um, because they need to ensure patient safety is also you know, um, there. And so it is a very, very challenging uh, problem for them. And so, uh, but they are open for discussions and particularly for in rare disease, you know, have implemented so many incredible schemes to to help and incentivize company to develop uh, rare disease treatments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is no doubt that safety should be 
I mean, the safety and safety, they no, uh, not rare diseases, I mean, for common diseases. So we should ensure, of course, safety for all citizens. But uh, let's open the discussion because I think, uh, as I said, when, when the regulation on orphan drugs started in uh, 80s in USA or in uh, Europe in uh, 20 or uh, in other countries. So now after 40, 20 years and so on, many things have changed. So I think it's time to, 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 to have a, a, an open discussion on this. Great. So I think we have time for one more question, and I'd like to come back. Uh, Marta, I'm going to come to you to, to answer this one. I'd like to come back to something that you mentioned and others had mentioned, and that's the, the patient advocacy groups or organizations and the role that they might play. Um, you know, this, this webinar is aimed at a general audience and particularly, you know, patients and the families of, of patients with rare disease. So I think these these organizations that... Um, whose members are patients and, and those families are incredibly important. So what can they do? Is there any, any advice you can give them on how they can play a role, more of a role, particularly in, in clinical trials, getting clinical trials set up for new treatments? Uh, patients groups are very involved, for example, uh, in our activity, and they are central because what we, we are doing here is discussing about them for them and uh, the paradigm has changed thanks also to patients' organizations. Uh, we are discussing with them. We are discussing about their needs. So uh, I think that as doctors, as researchers, we need really to, uh, to understand this, that we are doing our work for patients and patients have to know this, that we are there for them. So what should they do? They do many, many things already engage us and discuss with us and share their view with us. Uh, for example, uh, again, we work on patient pathways and we build patient pathways based on patient's point of view, not the physician point of view. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that to me, I'm a clinician, this is the very first step. So uh, patient groups tell us and work with us and tell us what, which are your needs share with us your data and, and guide us. Uh, they uh, obviously can reach patients and they can reach patients everywhere. They can educate patients. They can bring patients to research. So they really know how to do. Many of these associations are doing huge work. Not just saying support research, is research with us and, and support us. Mm -hmm. Great. Well. That's a fantastic way to end this webinar, I think, and unfortunately we, we are out of time. So um, many, many thanks to uh, all of the panelists for being with us today. It's really been a, a fantastic and I think a, a very fruitful discussion. Uh, a reminder to our viewers that the final installment of the series will be coming to you soon and uh, you can find information on that and all of our webinars as well as recordings of previous events at science.org webinars. Thank you once again to our fantastic panel uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone. Mm -hmm.